This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz Kryptoson. On this episode of the podcast, we have Daniel Alexius from Living Room of Satoshi and Wallet of Satoshi. We talk about Wallet of Satoshi and whether or not custodial wallets are good for the overall Lightning ecosystem. We get back into the subject of small blocks on this episode, as well as we generally discuss the Lightning Network, the circular economy, and much more. As always, if this podcast happens to bring value into your life, please chip in via Bitcoin or Bitcoin on Lightning at my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. You can also find links to tip me in the show notes as well. There are other ways you can support the show. If you cannot support the show financially, these include subscribing to the show, leaving a review, and sharing on social media, especially Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends that the Lightning Junkies podcast is the podcast to get your Lightning Network fix. Now let's go ahead and jump into this episode. I would like to go ahead and welcome Daniel to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today, Daniel? Hi, good. Thanks, Jess. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Absolutely. So generally, when I begin these sorts of interviews, I like to kind of start at, you know, your kind of general background, you know, preferably before you got into Bitcoin or crypto generally. Well, I don't want to bore you too much with my coming to Bitcoin uh, story or moment, but I'm a a programmer, basically. So I've, you know, downloaded and tried pretty much everything that I come across. And Bitcoin was one of those things. Um, What I decided to do was try and build something practical to to t- explore the limits of you know, what was possible with this new technology. So I started a company called Living Room of Satoshi about five or six years ago in Australia, which allowed people to pay their bills with Bitcoin, basically. You could um, pay your electricity bill, pay your rent, uh, your water bill, all those sort of things, and it hooked into Australia's bill payment system. So we let that run for a little while, and, and it became clear pretty quick what this um, new technology was capable of and what its limits were too. Got it. So I guess, to be honest, I am probably most familiar with Wallet of Satoshi. When did that enter the picture? I guess a little bit later. I mean, after we had this bill payment service running, it became obvious to me that um, Bitcoin wasn't really designed to be used like this as a retail payment system. You know, it had these 10-minute block times. We had to hedge the price while we were waiting for the confirmations. Um, they weren't real time. It, and I mean, I previously worked at MasterCard and other retail payment systems, and Bitcoin just didn't work like that. And I mean, you could, we put in some hacks to allow zero confirmation payments, but it was just that, it was just hacks. So I was waiting for a technology that would sit on top of Bitcoin and become a, a proper retail payment system. And so, of course, I was very excited when. I heard the first inklings of lightning come about and, you know, we were one of the first to try it out when it, when it came out. So we thought we'd build Wallet of Satoshi, a proper retail payment system for Bitcoin. Got it. Absolutely. I'll be honest here. I've used Wallet of Satoshi kind of more than I would prefer. Um, I was, I think I even called it its use cheating at one point. Uh, just because I feel like I come from the Bitcoiners that would say that having a custodial wallet is, you know, suboptimal, that, you know, that's not where we should be going, etc. 
how would you respond to that general criticism? Yeah, you know, that's a very common sort of thought. And I understand that because we've been conditioned by the properties of Bitcoin itself to value decentralization above everything. And I'm in, in that camp exactly. I'm a maximalist too. It's, it, it's important above everything else to preserve Bitcoin's decentralization as the base layer payment system. But when it comes to retail payment systems, custodial services can just do it better. They just can. There's trade-offs that have to be made when you decentralize things. And in a, a real-time, um, you know, merchant sort of style payment system or wallet payment system, I mean, you, I'm sure you still use your Visa card to buy things. I do. And it works really well. And the problem that Bitcoin solves is not necessarily the problem of retail payment systems, of getting fast, reliable, um, cheap payments for merchants and for consumers. The problems it solves are, are far more important than just a payment system. Yeah. Payment systems are a dime a dozen. I've worked on them in the past. You can get them to work well, but Bitcoin solves the problem of sound money and of open access to that payment system so that anybody can use it. So don't feel bad about, about using um, a custodial services like Wallet or Satoshi because, I mean, it's not designed to be used the same way as Bitcoin. You should definitely be using a hardware wallet or some other storage system to secure your own um, sovereign money. But if you're just buying coffee at the shop, then, uh, you know, a custodial wallet is a good trade-off to make. Honestly, it is. I mean, I would probably agree with you. And to be honest, most of the times I try to get a complete newbie, you know, into Lightning or into Bitcoin, I would probably use Wallet of Satoshi to get them in there just because it is just such an easy kind of onboarding and all that. And I, to be honest, I actually use it as a way of getting money on to the Lightning network. You know, we have SparkSwap now and we have Olympus coming from Zap at some point. The previous to that, I would very often just send, you know, Bitcoin directly from Cash App to Wallet of Satoshi, just because then it's up, it's on Lightning. It's a very small fee to get it on there, smaller than the on-chain fee that I would pay if I was sending out my own transaction. But let me take a quick detour here. How would you kind of characterize the ethos of Bitcoin? Like what are the most important things to kind of protect um, overall here? Yeah, well, what's Bitcoin useful for? I mean, if you, if you just came in raw and read the, uh, the white paper, as, as some people do, um, you know, in, in some of those old coins, you would think that it's it's a retail payment system. That's what it's good for. But over the years, we've seen what it truly is useful for, and it's that, that's that censorship-resistant money. It's this new kind of uh, money that has never been possible in history before. I mean, it's easy to forget how different this technology was. I remember you know, downloading uh, Kazaa back in the early 2000s um, and you'd have, you know, a Britney Spears MP3. It, it's a digital asset, but it could be copied. And companies tried to implement DRM to protect digital assets like those MP3s, but people always found a way around it. So the real value of Bitcoin is to um, create these digital assets that can't be forged. And that's perfect for censorship-resistant money. And as Safe Dean has kind of explained really well to us in his book, that it's also sound money, it's a different kind of money that's ever existed before. It's more like gold in that it's not subject to the policies of any particular government. It's an international currency. 
and it's a replacement for central bank money. So the properties that we need to preserve are exactly those ones, but it needs to be to remain sound money and it needs to remain an open access system too because, you know, one of the problems that I have as building a company is getting access to the financial system and you simply can't do it. If you, even if you're making a payment company, you cannot get access to those raw payment rails. You have to rely on a bank or some other payment provider to just get access to the system and then you're subject to the whims of that Oftentimes a private company, because banks are all private companies, um, whether you're allowed to access the system or not. But Bitcoin changes that because any person, any company can get direct access to the system if they want to. And they can choose how much trust they put in third parties to get access to that system or if they want to do it themselves. So they're the, the key things that need to be protected. In Bitcoin, in my view. Got it. So on my previous episode that came out uh, yesterday, actually, when when listeners actually hear this, this will be in a few weeks ago, the episode that I did with Shinobi here. A big part of the episode was kind of using Bitcoin, you know, using it on things that are currently illegal in whatever jurisdiction you might be in. So, you know, a, a big use case for Bitcoin might be Silk Road. What do you think about that general uh, idea? Uh-oh. I guess I have a slightly different view from Shinobi on that, in that I'm not going to actively promote people use it for illegal purposes. But the design of the system is such that it doesn't restrict people from using it for whatever they want to. So then those rules aren't built into the protocol, but they can be separately enforced by, by governments, um, by you know whoever wants to do that. But those things definitely shouldn't be part of the protocol. I, I was interested to listen to Shinobi, actually, when you are podcast yesterday um, because there's this also this small trend of people calling for a smaller block size and this is something I've had in the back of my mind for a long time actually um, Luke Jr. was obviously the first person to, to actively promote it and to you know get heavily derided for even promoting the idea and Nick Zabo came along in his podcast and talked about it again interestingly Shinobi mentioned it yesterday but I really, you know, as a business owner, as someone who uses Bitcoin, this is one of the most important things to me, preserving those properties so that we can build layer two networks. Because layer two networks don't work at all without preserving those properties in the layer one network. And if we want to preserve those properties, then a small block size kind of makes sense, you know. We shouldn't be using it as, as a payment system. Um, we should be using it as a trust system, as something that's expensive and solid and, you know, can't be compromised. What do you think about that? Got it. So yeah, I'm, I'm still on the fence about small blocks. I'm technical, but I'm probably not technical enough to really assess the uh, truth value. So I'm withholding my opinion at this point, I think. But I, I definitely find it fascinating at the idea of being able to transmit entire blocks over shortwave radio and things like that, um, making it a little bit more cypherpunk whenever possible sounds like a good thing, at least in principle. I think it's interesting too that we have... Um... We have old coins. You know, I think they do a lot of damage in, in um, fooling people who are new to the space about what Bitcoin is really all about. But they also serve a very useful purpose in that we can see practically what the results are from choosing different policies on, on the protocol level. Like, for, so Bitcoin Cash, for example, um, has a larger block size. 
Bitcoin SV has an even larger block size. And we'll be able to see in a practical way what happens when we do those things. We'll see them implode. And so that, that's useful because it, it just highlights how, how important it is to preserve the properties of the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and if we don't have those, then any of the current layer two solutions that we have now just don't work. And in my opinion, any future second layer protocol that we want to build will have to rely on those um, fundamental properties of Bitcoin. So, you know, maybe small block size is a good idea. Okay, I can definitely see the argument there. Let me just riff on what you just said there. So, you know, we have Bitcoin Cash, we have Bitcoin SV. Do you think that in practical terms that they've already imploded or are they going to implode kind of far more in the future? Well, I don't think they'll get big enough to implode, unfortunately, but we can see right now the consequences of making these kind of decisions. And the consequences are that people just don't run the nodes anymore. So Bitcoin Cash, there are fewer node users, even when you take into account the size of the network. And Bitcoin SV, I mean, their plan is to, for you know, only two or three large players on Earth will be, be running full nodes. Once you do that sort of thing, you immediately lose the censorship-resistant ability of the network. Um, so it's good to theorize about what what might happen, but in, in these altcoins, we can see it happening um, and, you know, back up our assumptions. Do you think that there's any altcoins out there that is doing anything interesting in your estimation? Look, they're all doing interesting things because they all, all, all choose uh, different properties to alter or modify I mean, Litecoin is spoken about often too, and they often implement proposed features in Bitcoin, like Sigwood, for example. And that's kind of very useful to see how it works um, with real-world money before it goes live with Bitcoin. So as a testnet for Bitcoin, I think these altcoins have some value. I just wish you know people wouldn't put so much money into them and they would cause all the confusion in the market that they do, but I don't know what the solution is there. Let, let people get wrecked and figure these things out from scratch, as I think the... Yeah, maybe that's it. Do you see any interesting uh, features coming to Bitcoin in the short term? Uh, at the protocol level, I mean, there's a few things proposed, but I mean, they're not, they're not fundamental changes to the protocol. Um, they're not going to make anything drastically different. And there's no plan to turn it into a retail payment system either, which I'm really happy about. Um, that, that shouldn't be the focus of the valuable space on the blockchain. It should really be a focus of making it as, as much as possible a trust machine that we can rely on to build other things on top of. And I mean, that's what I've been doing ever since I've known about Bitcoin, building stuff on top of it and seeing just where the limits are and what the trade-offs are. And there's trade-offs for everything. I mean, even Lightning is a trade-off. It's an amazing technology and it's an amazing use of the Bitcoin blockchain. But there are trade-offs involved. I mean, you have to lock up liquidity to be able to use it, which is kind of why using a service like Wallet of Satoshi makes some sense. I mean, you're basically paying us to be the liquidity provider, a very small amount, of course. We serve as that liquidity provider to the market um, and let let you just do the fast payments and we, we handle the rest of it. 
But yeah, all of these layer two technologies will have trade-offs. There's no silver bullet that will fix everything. So yeah, let's go ahead and come back to Wallet of Satoshi here. So when you were developing that, uh, did you run into any challenges or anything that, you know, Lightning Network itself kind of made more difficult? The Lightning Network was surprisingly mature, um, even right from the start or when, when they first kind of allowed people to start using it. Um, Honestly, people talk about routing problems and liquidity problems, but if you have a well-managed node, uh, like we obviously do, uh, with plenty of liquidity, the routing kind of takes care of itself. We have a very, very low percentage of failed payments, something up in the order of 0.1%, uh, which is amazing, you know, for such a, a new technology. Um, and it's mostly to do with the, the size and cost of the channel channels can be at the moment. And I think channels are going to increase in size over time, which will make services like ours even more reliable. Understood there. The one thing that I'm vaguely aware of is that you're in Australia. You're kind of using Wallet of Satoshi and Living Room of Satoshi in concert in order to build a a circular economy. Is this correct? Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've got a couple of special features for Australian users, which unfortunately we just can't scale to the world at the moment, um, but we've got the ability to onboard people directly from Fiat into Lightning in Wallet of Satoshi. So if you're in Australia, you'll see an extra tab where you can just send money to and it'll show up instantly as a, as a Lightning balance and it'll be instantly spendable too, which is really cool because the payment systems in Australia are getting better as well. We have some real-time payment options um, for Fiat. So you can basically get out of your dirty fiat immediately um, into Lightning and start using it straight away, which is really cool. Uh, another thing we've tried to work on is exploring point-of-sale systems as well. So we partnered up with a company called Travel by Bit in Australia who do um, basically flights and hotel bookings with Bitcoin. Um, they're worth using too. Check them out if you can. Um, but we built a system with them, a retail point of sale system for merchants to use, just to explore the technology there and see how useful it would be. We'd previously done it with Bitcoin, and, and I mean, it kind of worked. But Lightning solves a lot of problems when it comes to merchant retail payment systems because of the instant settlement. If it's instant settlement for the merchant, or in this case, instant settlement for the payment provider. Um, the merchant space, that's really what you need. You need fast instant settlement, especially when you're dealing with a currency like Bitcoin, which is still pretty volatile. So I was quite excited to see how that's been going. We've got about 250 of those brick and mortar retailers around Australia at the moment, um, mostly in places like airports where we get a lot of international travelers who can use um, lightning, obviously, uh, coffee shops and gift shops and that sort of thing. So that's been interesting to explore. And the benefit is that, you know, even though Wallet of Satoshi is a custodial system and the point of sale system is a custodial system, we're processing payments on behalf of the merchant. Both of those things have direct access to the payment network in terms of being um, real lightning systems. So any lightning wallet works with the point of sale system. Um, and conversely, you can use Wallet of Satoshi with any proposed point of sale system that anyone else develops. And that's a huge change. That's a huge improvement over the current system where the merchant has to be a Visa merchant and the customer has to have a Visa card. 
Um, otherwise, they just won't work. Um, so it, sometimes you lose track of, even though these systems are still custodial, they're solving huge problems um, for merchants and for retail payments. Yeah, and we've seen that demonstrated with our systems. <laughs> Has there been a lot of customer adoption at those merchants of uh, Lightning at all? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, it's still very much an experimental sort of thing. Um, we probably get a few transactions per day at each merchant at the most. And I mean, that's a function of how many people are actually using Bitcoin to go through airports. And you know, we don't do a lot of promotion of it either. But it's there and it's working. And if it's something that people find useful, it's getting a little bit of use at the moment. Um, it's not blowing any minds, that's for sure. But like with all things I've tried to do, we've got to build these technologies and try it out and see where it goes. See, I don't know who Lightning is useful for at the moment. I really don't. All I know is that it's useful for me as a business owner to get instant settlement of payments. I know that it's potentially useful for merchants to get instant settlement of Bitcoin because that's something that's very important in the merchant space. When it comes to other uses, I don't know. We're still exploring it to see where it goes. And building the wallet of Satoshi is one of those explorations to give us some data and find out what it's useful for. Okay, understood. You know, while on the same topic of a closed loop or circular economy, I kind of wanted to ask about living room of Satoshi here. Like a bill pay service, you know, maybe similar to bull Bitcoin in, in Canada, where you can pay as as far as I know, most bills with Bitcoin, so maybe even paying rent with Bitcoin, is that right? That's right, yeah. So we have a dedicated um, bill payment system in Australia running on the fiat payment rails that we've been able to look into. So that covers pretty much all of your household bills, electricity and um, you know, your rates, car registration, that sort of thing. And we've also looked into the banking system so you can pay your plumber or, or anybody else who has a bank account. Um, so that's been interesting to see how people use it. And people use it for all sorts of things. We publish that data on livingroomofsatoshi.com so you can see you know, what people are using it for every day, which is quite interesting. So about probably about uh, two years at this point, maybe a bit more. Um, I've been living you know, almost exclusively on Bitcoin in some sense. One of the biggest things was paying rent. So it's very interesting how, at least in Australia, you address that. Do you think the the payment system, the fiat payment system in Australia is unique in that sense? I've, I'm not very acquainted with it just being in the US and all. Yeah, most people in Australia tend to pay their rent just with a direct bank transfer, um, kind of push style payment, which happens fairly fast, usually overnight. So most people can use living room Satoshi, you know, pretty much immediately, um, as long as they have some sort of Bitcoin wallet to pay it with. I'm pretty jealous of that because it's here in the U.S. I'm, you know, trying to beg my landlord, like, please, please, you know, please take this Bitcoin thing. Usually it just doesn't make sense. You know, let's say they uh, supported Coinbase or, you know, BitPay, you know, uh, either of them would probably take a 1% fee, if not more. And if you're paying like a thousand dollar rent, let's say, you know, that can, you know, add up to be, you know, a, a good amount of, you know, like 10 bucks or something. And I'm a cheapskate, so I'm not really into that whole thing. On your service, you know, is there any fee that's kind of added on top to just the, the bill itself? Uh, we just charge our own spread basically on the, on the payments. Um, but the, there's very little costs for us really, apart from the regulatory costs. 
so we're able to keep that, that pretty tight. So people tend to use it pretty regularly for things like rent payments. I think what we're still missing is more of the accounting side of things. You know, in your case, I mean, for our service, it's good because the person receiving the payment doesn't even have to know about Bitcoin and they can use all their accounting systems the same way, exact same way they normally do. But if your landlord wants to receive Bitcoin directly, that is still a huge headache for him, just in terms of accounting. Uh, apart from anything else practical about being able to convert it to fiat or, or storing it somewhere, the accounting thing is a headache. And I've even noticed this when trying to support open source Bitcoin projects. <laughs> I, I can't name anyone in particular, but even some of the big Bitcoin open source projects can't accept payment in Bitcoin at the moment just because of the accounting headache. Um, we don't have any good accounting tools for being able to receive Bitcoin at the moment. And I've been looking in the space to see if anyone's going to address this, but I haven't seen any good solutions yet. I think once that kind of thing happens, it'll be easier for sellers, landlords and those sort of people to accept Bitcoin. I mean, even, even the tax implications are very clear in most jurisdictions now. I know, I know they are in Australia. So there's no problems there. It's more just, just being able to run the business and you know, keep your, all your accounting records in some sort of sensible order or way. Um, it's still very hard to do that at the moment. So you're saying that the uh, the tax payment thing is a little bit straightforward for you there. In the U.S., it's not straightforward at all. But do you want to, like, share, you know, how things work down there? Yeah, thankfully, things are regulated a bit more at the federal level in Australia. We don't have individual states making up all their own laws, which makes things a lot easier. Um, but having said that, we've had a lot of trouble with regulators in the past. In 2014, Australia decided to add a goods and services tax to Bitcoin, which is like a VAT, which essentially meant that you were paying double tax on everything. Basically killed our business and it killed every other Bitcoin company in Australia at that stage. A lot of them moved overseas um, to be able to continue operating. Thankfully, they reversed that decision a couple of years later after you know we all got together as an industry and, and told them that this was just stupid. And since then, they've, they've been a lot more accommodating to our opinions about, about trying to explain how Bitcoin works so they don't do that sort of thing again. Uh, even this morning, I was talking to someone from Treasury. They're looking to make regulations about, about the whole cryptocurrency space. And, you know, the industry associations are one source of data for that. But often they get co-opted by, you know, your, your cashed up ICOs and the like. So it's kind of important to, to be that independent voice to these people. Just try and explain the difference between Bitcoin and everything else. So they don't make any more of those stupid rules. Understood. I'm assuming you, you pay capital gains tax on Bitcoin and sells there as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's no special rules for Bitcoin specifically, apart from an exemption they brought in a couple of years ago, about a $10,000 yearly limit um, if you use it in a retail sense. You know, if you're just using it to, to buy your coffee or pay bills or whatever, then it's exempt in that case. So that's been good for adoption in Australia too. Oh, so that's something that's already on the books then? Yeah, that's right. That's been operating for about two years now. 
$10,000 exemption. That's very interesting. And I, I really wish we had a, a couple of those laws in the U.S. that would make things so much simpler. Beyond regulatory things here, I'm kind of curious, you know, do you plan to grow these uh, these businesses, you know, Living Room of Satoshi and Wallet of Satoshi at all? We, we have had plans in the past to do that. The problem is that these are very regulatory heavy kind of systems to be playing in when it comes to payments. Governments all have their own individual rules in different countries, as you know, and you really have to be a local expert um, to be able to expand. And some companies have the you know, capacity to do that and they're trying, but it's still a huge cost on lawyers and trying to understand all the regulations. So, I mean, Wallet of Satoshi, as I said, it's more of an experiment at the moment. We know that this is a far better way to do payments on Bitcoin and we want to explore exactly what we can do with it. One of the best things I've seen about it is that it makes use of the fact that Bitcoin is an international currency. And so you can hop on a plane and go anywhere and you can use it. And it functions kind of like fiat money, a fiat money payment system, pretty close to it anyway. And that's something that just hasn't been possible on Bitcoin before. So I'm excited to see that. What else we'll see? I don't know. Got it. Let me ask you this. Would there be anything that if you could wave a magic wand that you would just start doing tomorrow in terms of, you know, the uh, the business, you know, something that might just be too much of a regulatory burden at the moment, maybe? I mean, we went through the lengthy process uh, about two years ago in Australia to become a fully regulated um, financial services company. So there's something called a financial services license in Australia. Um, so previously, no cryptocurrency-related company has ever attempted um, before. We finally got through that process, and it was a huge expense and burden. Uh, and definitely not worth it in terms of monetary value for us. But I think it kind of helped helped out the whole industry in the fact that we we're the first ones to do it. You know, we've set the precedent now. The regulators know a bit more about how it works. The insurers are getting familiar with it. We pay a huge premium for uh, PI, professional indemnity insurance. So I, I guess more than anything, I'd like regulators just to back off and wait a little bit longer because once you start setting regulations, they apply in ways that you don't anticipate. And that's been our experience for the last five or six years. We've fallen into categories that really don't apply to us, but the rate regulations already written so we have to okay understood there you know i am familiar with maybe only a couple of australian bitcoin things you know i'm aware of amber i'm aware of uh stefan lavera you know his podcast and everything is there any other major bitcoin companies or bitcoin things in australia that people should be aware about look you've already got the cream right there <laughs> stefan lavera and amber yeah, those guys uh, are good friends and they're really doing the right thing, trying to push things forward the right way. Someone else I mentioned before, Travel by Bit, obviously trying to make some waves in, in the um, you know, flights and hotel booking space um, and push more of that retail usage of Bitcoin, which you know hasn't been pushed to its limit yet. And we haven't seen how useful it is for that retail kind of space yet. Apart from that, uh, yeah, you pretty much covered everything. Everything else in Australia is a scam, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, stay away from the likes of Power Ledger and, and yeah, all the other ICO scammers. Okay, I understand that makes a lot of sense. You've kind of mentioned uh, retail payments and kind of merchant adoption several times here. Something that's come up multiple times in previous podcasts 
has been the idea that, you know, Bitcoin might end up getting, you know, the, the base chain of Bitcoin might end up getting fees that are like $100 per transaction. If this ends up being the case, do you think it's going to fundamentally change how you run your business? Um, I think it will, but it will in a good way. I mean, I want this to happen. I want to accelerate it, if anything. Um, which is kind of part of the reason why I'd support a proposal to reduce the block size. We need to get away from the idea that Bitcoin is a retail payment system and just stop using it like that. And it needs to be that that rock-solid, reliable base layer that we can build things on top of. Got it. So, I mean, do you think the same argument can be made about Lightning at some point, that the... The transaction fees are so large that it makes it very difficult to even open up a uh, lightning channel. Um, I think lightning channels at the moment are a very valid use case. Maybe the only valid use case of uh, usage of Bitcoin blockchain at the moment. I mean, I have a look at some of the channels that I've opened on my nodes and we're getting up to uh, 10,000 payments, for example, in some cases, in some of those channels. And that, that's all for the price of one on-chain Bitcoin transaction. So the scale is just tremendous how much data it's taking away from the Bitcoin blockchain and putting it into Lightning. And as you said, Lightning's not the end game either. It's really just the start. It's one of multiple options. Things could be built on top of Lightning. We could have alternative layer two solutions that anchor into the, block, the Bitcoin blockchain periodically and I think that there's enough smart people around that can come up with solutions for how to minimize the impact of that data on the Bitcoin blockchain that we, that we don't have to worry about ever expanding the size of the block, of the block size. Question is, how do you handle uh, channels? Do you guys have some kind of like automated script that you use or is everything done manually? That's a good question. So we've got a few different nodes running at the moment. We've got one primary node, I guess. Um, which is running on LND currently. We have a couple of other implementations though. Um, channel management hasn't really been an issue for us because we've had enough liquidity to kind of handle any use case that we currently have. But I can see that it's going to be a problem because manually managing these channels can't scale. And there are some smart people coming up with solutions for these things. As I said there's a few scripts that are available to balance channels and that sort of thing. The guy from Lightning Gifts is working on a solution for channel balancing, which is pretty exciting, more in a, a software as a service sort of way. So that's something that could be useful to business owners who run Lightning nodes who don't want to learn all the technical side of it and have to manage that sort of thing themselves. But as I said, there's lots of smart people in this space who are going to come up with services for Lightning. Um, that we can take advantage of. When a, a channel on your end ends up getting pushed to the uh, remote side, how do you guys rebalance that currently? Uh, at the moment, we just do it manually if we need to. We'll make an outgoing payment in that channel directly. But it's more of just having enough liquidity overall, you know, sufficient outgoing liquidity and sufficient income liquidity that the Lightning Network node implementation basically takes care of it. It's, it's pretty clever. It'll, it'll find a route as long as you have outgoing liquidity somewhere. Do you open a lot of channels or do you close a lot of channels? We basically rarely close channels. There's no real need for us to do that. We just keep them open for some extra liquidity. Uh, we open channels 
yeah, manually whenever we see that there's a lot of usage. For example, we get new services popping up from time to time and people want, want to try them out and, and hit them very heavily. And so in those cases, it's worthwhile for us to open a channel directly to them just so that, yeah, things don't get too unbalanced. But it's the sort of thing that a computer or a script needs to do definitely and could do much better than me manually looking at what we need. A topic that I bring up kind of constantly on this podcast is the idea of onboarding users directly to Lightning and skipping over Bitcoin itself. Do you have any particular opinion on that kind of tactic of onboarding users? I think that's a good thing. I think most end users at the moment are interested in using it as a payment system. And that's why we built in that fiat option into Wallet of Satoshi for Australian customers at least. So they can go directly into a lightning balance without needing to touch the, the Bitcoin blockchain at all. And I think in the vast majority of cases, that's what people want. They want to be able to send and receive Bitcoin easily and onboarding directly to lightning is, is the perfect way to do that. Do you think that there's any kind of trade-offs for doing it that way that potentially they made, they might end up, you know, picking up bad habits or anything like that? No, I think... The opposite, actually. I think we need to get people thinking more of Lightning as Bitcoin, as that's that's the way to use it. If I mean, if they get it, a Lightning balance instantly on Wallet of Satoshi, so they can send it out instantly. It's not like it's locked up anywhere. They can also send directly to a Bitcoin address if they want to. It's kind of a hidden feature in Wallet of Satoshi. You can just scan any Bitcoin address and do an instant conversion. I think people are going to start to get used to the idea that because Lightning Network is so liquid and liquidity is improving all the time, that they can think of it as being Bitcoin. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Okay, I would probably agree with that. Do you think that ultimately those users should be you know, running a Bitcoin full node and maybe a uh, L&D node in order to you know, have the most control over their you know, their lightning and on-chain funds. I think one of the amazing things about this technology is that people have the option to do that if they want to. And I don't think getting new users to run a full Bitcoin node and a lightning node is useful to them in any way. I think they need a much gentle introduction to Bitcoin, and that's something that all of Satoshi does. As they become more sophisticated users, perhaps using it to, you know, save money or to build a business, then definitely they need to be able to run that those kind of software. And that's precisely why we need to preserve the properties of the main Bitcoin blockchain so that it doesn't get bloated. It's still an option for people to run easily. And the businesses don't outsource to other people that they do it all themselves. Do you think that there's anything, you know, technologically that's coming up in Lightning that interests you and think kind of propels this whole game forward? Uh, question i'm not sure i think one thing that we could do pretty soon is to increase the size of the channels because we're using lightning in wallet of satoshi and that's mostly used for small payments at the moment which is awesome you know even sub satoshi payments but we're also using it a living room satoshi and people are starting to pay real bills with it so you know, your $100, your $400 bills, your $600 bills. And that kind of stretches our liquidity uh, when it comes to Lightning because just because of the limit of channel size. And if everyone's confident enough to do that, I think 
that people will start using it for larger payments like those bill services. That's a big improvement because that's bill payments with instant settlement. And for a company like mine, that takes a lot of risk out of it. And for, for anyone using it, uh, Lightning to pay bills, it takes the risk out of them too. Okay, and then I'm going to circle back around here, no pun intended, to the circular economy thing again. How do you think, you know, maybe on a more global basis, I, I know your, your product kind of addresses that in Australia, but how do you think maybe more on a global basis do we address the issue of, you know, not having easy ways of paying various bills in Bitcoin? You know, do people just get used to, you know, dumping to fiat and paying the, the normal people in fiat? or should X, Y, and Z happen in order to address this? That's a good question. I mean, when I started Living Room with Satoshi, my initial plan was to put myself out of business to get people so used to the idea of using Bitcoin that they don't need to use uh, third-party payment processes to do it for them. And I think Lightning helps with that just because, you know, it's, it's possible for anybody to be a payment processor now. You don't have to... You know, use a third party if you don't want to. So I'll be keenly watching people in other countries to see how they're using it, if they kind of copy our model, and eventually get the merchants and sellers so used to the idea of Bitcoin that it just becomes more natural for them. And is there anything that, you know, maybe non-businesses or, or non-companies could do to get, you know, more people into the circular economy or to kind of start using Bitcoin in a you know, living on Bitcoin sort of way. Yeah, I think focusing on Lightning as, as a payment system and promoting it like that is maybe not the best way to do it because honestly, fiat payment systems are pretty good, especially in, in um, countries like Australia. Going to any Lightning wallet is, is going to be a step backwards for them potentially. So it's more important than anything to educate people on the idea of why Bitcoin is different to fiat money and why it's important for them. And I think that, honestly, I think that financial crises and um, global uncertainty about what's happening in the central banking system is just going to do that for us. People who start, start to kind of realise what fiat money is all about and start to look at Bitcoin themselves. And if we have those products there ready for them to use, it will be easy to afford. Got it. So, I mean, basically what you're saying is, you know, let people know about the uh, sound money uh, traits of Bitcoin and kind of let the rest do its job. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, I guess in my experience, I have difficulty getting people to understand the whole sound money argument. It tends to just fall apart like, oh, okay, cool, Chaz, pat on your head a little bit. And then they just stop listening, tune out sort of thing. How do we get people to just listen to that initial argument? Well, it's it's got to address a personal need. I think that some people, especially uh, older ones who've retired, I know particularly in Australia, who have savings in the bank and have seen the interest rates dropping and they're just basically getting nothing anymore for the, for the money that they have, it kind of prompts them to think about what this thing is that they've got and whether it really has any value. Um, so talking to people from that angle, uh, I find that they're often curious to find out about what this fiat money is that they're holding and why it's doing what it does and why central banks are making the decisions that they do. I mean, QE is going to be a big thing. I see in the newspapers in Australia today that the uh, Australian central bank has given up on reducing interest rates. They're down to about 0.5%, but they're obviously scared about the effect, um, the psychological effect that going to zero will have on people. 
going to, to do more quantitative easing. So those sort of things people are going to be interested in. They're going to know about it and it'll be easier for them to understand why Bitcoin is different from those systems, I think. I guess just in my own personal experience, it's, you know, once you begin to have like a political or financial conversation with people, they tend just to tune out immediately. It's like, okay, I'm done. Kind of let's let's talk about Netflix or something. Kind of moving on from there, I wanted to briefly ask. So I was looking at your uh, website on Living Room of Satoshi, and I noticed you accept more than just Bitcoin. You also accept other altcoins. Do you want to let me know why that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that, that's a bit of a pain point for me because I'm clearly a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, we started with Bitcoin, um, but we need to address that market demand. People want to want to cash out these coins, and so we're given the option to do it. Um, so if you want to dump all your altcoins, you know, Living Room Satoshi is an easy way to do it. Get them straight into fiat or pay doors and then you're done. Hopefully over time, those options, I mean, they will definitely because the market cap of those coins is going down. Um, I mean, all our, our current and future development is on Bitcoin. And I'm guessing 95% of your the payments coming in are from Bitcoin or from Bitcoin Lightning. Is that right? If you click on the stats page on our website, we published that data for the, for the last 30 days. So let me have a quick look now. So we got 61% payments with Bitcoin, 13% Ethereum, interestingly, still, and then Litecoin and Lightning in fourth place. So that's quite amazing for bill payments. Lightning has taken up all that ground such a short amount of time above Ripple, Bitcoin Cash, BNB, Monero, Decred, Dash, all the others. Do you think that there's any good argument against supporting these these particular coins or chains or whatnot? Against supporting them? Yes. What, for me personally or for... Yes. Yeah, maybe there is. Maybe it does add to that legitimacy aspect by listing alongside Bitcoin. Makes people feel like they're in the same category. Maybe we'll work on altering the website to make it clear that they should be using Bitcoin. Of course, with all our current customers, we do promote our product, our wallet subscription product, and we're constantly doing media about Lightning and about you know what it does and how it works and how it can be useful for them too. You know, you were saying that, you know, you kind of advertise Lightning, you know, generally on your website. And I kind of got the vision of, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen the Blockstream satellite Twitter that like a lot of people are using to uh, troll with. A fair amount of them are like BSV people or Ripple people using Lightning in order to kind of insult Lightning or insult Bitcoiners. Do you think that there's a fair amount of people that are, you know, maybe using altcoins primarily on your service that are, you know, looking at Lightning and are getting sold into it? <laughs> Do you mean that the, the Lightning's having an effect on BSV is because they can see that it actually works? Basically. Maybe they're like, yeah. you know, grumbling to themselves about it, but yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's still a lot of misinformation around about Lightning in those communities. So I try and stay away from them as much as I can. I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, <laughs> we've got this product that works. Um, fees are low. It's instant settlement. Um, and it, it doesn't affect the Bitcoin blockchain. It doesn't compromise any of those properties that we need to preserve. Um, so, I mean, it really demonstrates itself. Where do you see Bitcoin, Lightning, and the whole uh, ecosystem of Bitcoin being in maybe 10 years? Do you see it improving significantly? Ooh, 10 years is a long way out. 10 years ago, we didn't even have Bitcoin. But, um, yeah, I see what you mean. I, I think that people are going to gravitate towards the property 
of its internationalness um, more than anything. You know, people are becoming more mobile, traveling more, and fiat systems are really bad at that. Um, so that might be the first place where people see its utility. And if people want to spend it when they're traveling, um, moving around, then merchants are going to accept it. And especially companies are going to build on it because they can get direct access to the payment rails. So they're the, they're the places that I think are going to develop first. Companies building directly on the payment rails so they don't have to go through all that banking rubbish and um, consumers who use it internationally. All right, perfect. Well, do you want to go ahead and let our listeners know how they can find you and your business on the internet and on Twitter and whatnot? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, Daniel Alexius. I'm involved in both Living Room Satoshi and Wallet of Satoshi, so try them both out if you haven't yet. Okay, perfect. Well, I really appreciate you joining me on the Lightning Junkies podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Boom. That was a lightning strike of an episode. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation and learned something too. I certainly did. If you did, in fact, learn something, once again, I would ask that you chip in a little bit of Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning on my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. There's also links to tipping.me, BottlePay, and LNCast in the show notes as well. Earlier this month, someone was nice enough to donate 1 million sats to the podcast, This was enough to cover one month of costs and associated with running the podcast, so I really appreciate it. Just to throw it out there, I am generally open to future sponsorships in order to monetize this podcast. I know I said on early episodes that I wouldn't do this, but I've definitely been having a change of heart and would love to be able to do this show full time and be able to progress it. I've had ideas about integrating my previous career as a photographer into the podcast. So the idea would be I would travel to where my podcast guests are or to meet them somewhere and also bring my photo gear with me and take uh, portraits that, you know, I might have called edgy at one point in my life. If you want to reach out about sponsoring the podcast, you can reach me at chaz at lightningjunkies.net. But for now, I will leave things here and I will see you on the Lightning Network. <laughs>